chapter 27. Just before we begin, if you have a beige uh, Corolla uh, VHA187 license plate, your car is leaking gas out in the parking lot, and we want to let you know about that. Amen. So if that's yours, then we let you know. Exodus chapter 27. Praise the Lord. We're going to quickly finish up with the gate uh, this morning, and uh, we won't, don't even want to spend too much time in review so we can go right into the brazen altar. Uh, last week, we made the statement that the uh, gate was not a black hole. Now, can anybody remember what, what the point we were making, or what was the point that we were making uh, with that statement? Okay, this, this is, uh, there's some gravitational force that's so intense that if you simply walk by the the uh, gate is just going to suck you in. There's, uh, we're not saying that there's uh, no decision or we're not talking about irresistible grace. Thank God for grace. The Bible, Jesus says, no man comes unto me unless the Father draw him. We understand that there is a drawing of God that nobody comes uh, to salvation unless they're drawn but we take it uh, to the point of error if we say that grace is irresistible and if you've been preordained to be saved, then uh, your choice is inconsequential for or against uh, that you'll simply be irresistibly drawn and you must be saved and it's not something based on our decision, but it's something based uh, on the preordination of God. Amen. So we understand that there's, there's truth. There, we have been uh, predestined according to foreknowledge, but it is another uh, thing entirely to take that to the place where God has uh, simply chosen some to be saved and then chosen others to be damned, to spend the, their lives in the lake of fire for all eternity, and God is pleased to do that. Amen. Now, where did we get the, the idea that God might be pleased to send people to hell? Where, where did we find that? Okay, John Calvin uh, said in, uh, his, uh, one of his statements, he says uh, uh, that it was his pleasure one day to admit to his salvation and those to whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. And so uh, Brother Calvin has said that, uh, that it is God's pleasure to just choose to send some to hell. Amen. Now, how does this line up with the Word of God? What, what are some things that we could bring up here? Uh, Heidi? Okay. All right. Good. Dick? Okay, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. Dave? Okay, there's one. 
Okay, Ezekiel, a number of passages, uh, says uh, that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, John Calvin says that he has a pleasure in that, but God says in his word that he has no pleasure. And so we're talking about something that is not based on simply uh, irresistible grace, we're talking about something that if we're going to enter into, we must do what? Go ahead. You have to make a decision. Okay. Whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will. Okay. And so there is a decision to be made and we have the responsibility to make that decision. Okay. Now, uh, we went over a number of warning uh, passages uh, in uh, last time. And uh, what, what creates, what, what kind of problem do these warning passages create for the believer in eternal security? Warning passages. Somebody, John. Okay, if you can't backslide, why would God warn you against it? If you can't fall, if you can't apostatize, if you can't uh, fall away, then why the constant uh, warnings against that? Warnings that, so that people who can't backslide won't. People uh, that we're, we... Just because uh, that the Bible is warning us all throughout the Bible not to turn away, not to shipwreck our faith, uh, that... Uh, that doesn't mean that you actually can do that. They're just there to, to warn you against something that can't happen anyways. And so this is a real problem. And the reason that the warnings are in the Bible is because God, uh, because the, the danger is there. The danger is there that you and I can turn away from our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's look at some scriptures and let's just move on real quickly. First Peter 1.5. Someone... Over in this section, Taffy, Second uh, Peter three seventeen, Bob Corsi, uh, Dick Paola, uh, Hebrews ten thirty five through thirty nine, and uh, Norm uh, Brenier, James five nineteen through twenty. Okay. <coughs> Did you have that? First Peter one five. Okay, kept by the power of God. Second Peter three seventeen. Okay, he says, Okay, uh, you've heard what's happened. Beware that you fall away from your steadfastness in the faith. Hebrews ten, thirty five through thirty nine. Okay. Let's look at that verse just really quickly. The Bible says, For the just shall live by faith. And then the translators add to that verse, they say, But if any man turn away, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now, that wouldn't seem like very much, 
but what that it does tremendous violence to the passage because uh, any man may, does not necessarily have to refer to the just. But in the original, uh, the way that it is written, they do not, they didn't need to add this here that he is understood and that verse literally says the just shall live by faith, but if he turn back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. You see the difference between sticking in any man and sticking in he? Any man can refer to somebody who just comes close to getting saved and then goes back. But this is talking about the, the, this pronoun is referring right back to the just. So the just shall live by faith, but if he turn back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. And we are not like those who draw back to perdition, to damnation. But we keep on keeping on for Jesus. So here's the just turning away and the just to perdition. Now that's a warning, sounds to me, and one uh, that uh, needs to uh, be there in our minds. Uh, James 5, 19 and 20. Okay, any among you? Oh well, those are the uh, those are the uh, unsaved people that go to the church. No, that's that's not what it says. If any among you, if any of the brethren wander away, then you uh, restore that one, and you'll save a sinner from death. You'll cover a multitude of sins. Warnings about about. Uh, People who have once believed in Jesus Christ, who have once uh, uh, given their lives to God, uh, who turn away from God, uh, and who are in danger of perdition of eternal death. These warnings uh, are there because the danger is very, very real. Now, that doesn't mean that we walk around uh, on, on uh, eggshells uh, wondering if we're going to fall into perdition. It doesn't happen that way. It's a decision that someone makes. We don't. Uh, I don't hassle my assurance. I'm. I'm saved. I believe that I'm saved. But if I was uh, back in sin, living for the devil, then I wouldn't have an assurance that I was saved. I wouldn't have. Uh, I wouldn't have anything to stand on to prove to me that I could be saved. That I was saved. Amen. Do we have any questions here before we go on, Jeff? Okay, well, I, I believe that there's a twofold thing uh, that is, uh, that's there, and I'm just saying my opinions. Number one is uh, the uh, lack of assurance that came from uh, the Roman heresy. So you've got these there. This is the Reformation. You have uh, people who have... Uh, under the Roman heresy, they have uh, not uh, had any assurance of salvation whatsoever. And so there is uh, uh, a desire to uh, bring some kind of degree of assurance uh, to believers uh, that they really can be saved. I should say threefold now that I think of it. What Another thing is a lot of these, um, 
these doctrines come uh, from this comes from Augustine, who was based a lot on uh, on Greek philosophers, uh, who had a certain uh, who had understandings about predestination, and so we have uh, we have a desire to maintain not simply accurate theology, but a kind of uh, keeping a system that lines up with Greek philosophy, with uh, the Neoplatonists and others uh, that they wanted to keep uh, Augustine uh, interpreted Christian doctrine in the light of Neoplatonism. And so you have this coming in right here of predestination. And so this worked its way all the way through to Calvin and the others. And uh, so my, my three is uh, because when you don't uh, preach on the Holy Ghost and people don't get delivered, and so they come to you and they're still bound in, your, in their sin, uh, then you find some way to tell them that they'll be okay even when you can't get them set free. And so those are one opinion and a couple of shots in the dark. I think Yeah, and so if you're involved in, I don't know, if, you, if you've never uh, sought to minister, uh, if you're not filled with the Holy Ghost, you're not dealing with people filled with the Holy Ghost, you're not in an assembly that's preaching on sin, and you're constantly dealing with uh, sincere people who have bondages and other things in their lives uh, that you don't know how to get them free from, they don't know how to get them free from, then what you end up coming back to all the time is just this eternal security. Well, praise God, it's not, doesn't matter, you know, once saved, always saved, just keep plugging on, the sin will, may stay in your life, but that's okay, Jesus loves you, and, and when he looks at you all, when God looks at you all, he sees is Jesus. Amen. Yes. This was a major uh, battle that John Wesley had in his ministry. Uh, John Wesley did not believe in eternal security. Uh, he preached that uh, uh, that uh, you needed to continue to believe to be saved, and he went uh, had some tremendous difficulties uh, as others, uh, uh, the, like George Whitfield, he rose up for uh, for this eternal security, and others of his own preachers that he uh, discipled and ministered to were taken off uh, into this thing, but. Uh, we find that the Wesley Revival had tremendous impact to change the entire complexion of his generation uh, in that day that he was probably, they say, the, who was the most significant life in the entire 18th century. Well, that's because people weren't uh, uh, brought into lethargy by just feeling that, well, people are preordained. If they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved, and we don't have to go out to preach to them. Now, they may not say that with their lips, but that's the thing that happens in the heart. Amen. Okay, we need to move on. And we, uh, the other thing that, that you, you'll find is uh, a, a understanding comes that a Christian is not morally better than a sinner. We're saying that, uh, okay, um, 
You know, I, all that's happened to me is I'm just under the blood. I'm, I'm as much of a sinner as you are, but I'm, I'm saved. Well, I understand that my sinful nature is just as bad as their sinful nature. I understand that I'm made of the same stuff, but I have to believe that a Christian that has been saved and set free ought to live a better life than when he was a sinner. And not simply say, well, uh, I'm really, I'm no better than what I once was, but I'm under the blood now. I'm just forgiven. You know, it's the Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Bumper sticker. I, I've got a little pole going. I, I, if ever I see one parked, I just look for, in the ashtray. amazing it's always full and if you've got that bumper sticker you know no problem but I just thought it was you know I see one of the parking lot Christians aren't perfect they're just forgiven I just look up yep well I understand I'm not perfect thank God I'm forgiven but I believe that salvation is more than just uh, saving us from the punishment of sin but is saving us from the power of sin. That salvation means that you and I can be free. That I don't have to stick a bumper sticker on my forehead while I get a cigarette hanging out of my mouth saying, well, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. I believe that a Christian can be morally better than a sinner. I believe that I'm morally better than before I was saved. And that's not because of anything of myself, but I've experienced salvation. Glory to God. I've been set free. The chains have been broken. I'm a new creation. Amen. Yes, not just the theology, well, uh, that uh, of, of imputed righteousness, that, okay, well, as soon as you get saved, you're right with God, you're ready for heaven, and all that's... Well, all that's wonderful, but as our brother says, people want to be different. People want to be changed. And that's the gospel we preach. Not that, well, you won't really be any better off, but uh, uh, when God looks at you, He'll see Jesus. Well, that's, that may be an encouragement to, to those of you, uh, you and I that are struggling and pressing on and believing God to change us, uh, but it is not an excuse uh, to maintain sin in our lives. Sister? Amen. It really does undercut the power of the gospel. Amen. And if you, as I did, I, six years, this is, was my understanding, and six years struggling, bound, all kinds of problems in my life, and there is, I didn't know that I could be free. And no one would ever tell me that I could be free. And all the, it was just the uh, kind of bombs and the, uh, of, uh, you know, well, once saved, always saved, and, and and don't worry about it. The victory is for those uh, who, uh, who understand that. Uh, Joyce? Oh. Okay. Uh, you reach a certain segment of people, people that are, uh, you know, perhaps religious already, or they're moral people. And uh, this, is the, uh, this is the type of clientele that you're reaching. Well, then when they backslide, uh, they... They go back to being moral and religious and, they, you know, they, they don't even, uh, you know, it just doesn't look. Well, they're just uh, going through a crisis in their faith or difficulty. They don't uh, go back to, uh, 
they go back to a life that doesn't look as bad. They don't look like they have even backslid. Uh, Ken Herman? Uh-huh. Now, the reason that you don't want to tell people that they had not a gamble, they had not a smoke, they had not a drink, is because you might, uh, you might disturb their assurance. Now, isn't that interesting that the doctrine that is supposed to provide assurance, that is supposed to be the only, that, you know, you and I that believe that, that, uh, it's, uh, that you can backslide, boy, you must have no assurance at all. None. You just wondered all the time if you're going to backslide. But here is uh, the understanding of once saved, always saved, and you can't even preach on sin because it'll ruin their assurance. Spend all the time feeding them scriptures uh, about once saved, always saved, uh, because they, they're, uh, they're, uh, their assurance uh, doesn't reach down to their heart. I believe it's only in their head, because in their heart they know they're not right with God. Uh, Norm? Right. Gnosticism. That was the, one of the first heresies that the, uh, after the uh, legalism of the Judaizers, uh, the other was Gnosticism. That uh, separation of body and spirit uh, that says I can do whatever I want with my body because it's my spirit that's saved and it doesn't affect. I can fornicate. This was incipient Gnosticism was what was being dealt with in the Corinthian church and so it hasn't died away. It's still around. I can do whatever I want with my body because my spirit's saved. Okay. Um, we gotta, we got to move on. I, all these comments are good and I'm sure there's a bunch more that would help us. But uh, let's, let's move on really quickly and... Uh, we need to understand that sinners don't go to heaven. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Someone find this for us. Ron Stewart. Uh, someone find Revelation 21, 8. Um, Mike Solano. And uh, if you'd find and read those uh, scriptures for us there. Okay. They which do such things. Not they which do those things, but they pray the sinner's prayer, so they'll still go in, but they which do such things. Uh, Revelation 21, 8. Okay, and I'd just like to read another one, Galatians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drinkers, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So that's what the Word of God declares. You do those things, then you don't have assurance of salvation. See, the question before us is not whether the believer is eternally secure. The believer is eternally secure. Our problem is, what is a believer? What constitutes a believer? Is a believer some, someone who simply has an intellectual faith in Jesus Christ? No. It's someone who's made a decision and placed their faith in the Son of God, surrendered their, themselves to Him. 
And so if intellectual faith did not save you before you prayed the sinner's prayer, neither will it save you after. The question is not whether you and I are eternally secure as believers. The question is, what is a believer? Dwayne? Okay. Good. So, we're not talking about justification by works. We're talking about faith. But what we're saying is, is that you can cease to believe. Now, that ceasing to believe doesn't mean that you cease to believe the tenets of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. I believed that for years before I was saved. But what I, what I, uh, what I did when I got saved was that I gave my life by faith to that. Now, if I remove my life from fa- by faith in that uh, another time, then I'm no longer saved. It has nothing to do with works. It has to do with faith. The question is not whether the believer is eternally secure. The question is, what is a believer? Okay, when you and I meet Jesus, we have a changed life. To as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That uh, we are not simply in a, in a theological situation where now I have imputed righteousness and so that's all that it takes. But we're talking about something that goes far beyond that. Uh, that not only do I have an imputed righteousness by faith in Jesus, uh, but I have his power to set me free from sin and to make me a new person. And anything less than that is not the gospel. That's the gospel that we preach. Amen. And that's the gospel that gets people saved. Come and you'll have imputed righteousness. Who who cares? We We want to be changed. We want to be saved. Brother Noel? They don't remember it. It's kind of happening. Right. And the picture of the gate especially helps us to see that that the gate is not something that you were just kind of there and just kind of like Star Trek, you know, you just kind of... and you were, you were, you know, you were in the other side. It, it made a conscious decision that you entered into the gate of the tabernacle. You made a decision. You could remember the moment in time when you did that. I made a decision that I wanted God. I took my sheep, my bullock, whatever it was, I admitted I was a sinner, and I walked through the gate. Okay, good. Let's move on. We want to at least get the brazen altar uh, established for us. Uh, someone who's got a New King James Bible that can read. Uh, Ken Helton, could you read uh, Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8 for us? Okay. The brazen altar. So you come through the gate. You've entered through the person of Jesus Christ. You've entered through that gate that is a symbol of Jesus Christ and you look up and there is an eight foot by eight foot gleaming, stinking brass altar. That's the first thing that you come in contact with. Uh, As a matter of fact, when you entered into the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, uh, the labor. And you walked up to that, you couldn't see anything else. You couldn't see it. It's eight foot high, eight foot wide, 
You're, you're looking at this thing and you can't see what the, anything else but this tabernacle. I'm sorry, it's not eight foot. It's eight foot around this way and it's how many cubits high? Three cubits, which is another five and well, maybe you could see everything else. Anyways, <laughs> that was obviously the major thing you were looking at. All right? Get confused with my dimensions there. All right, so you're looking at this gleaming stinking brazen oil. Why is it stinking? Because there's blood all over the place. There's uh, burning flesh and all kinds of things going on and, and priests with blood all over them and, and bowls and pans and fire pans and everything else. And you have to come face to face with this brazen altar. That's the very first thing that you come to. And uh, it, was a, uh, uh, it was a box. If you would just look down inside of it, it was just a hollow box. It was uh, empty right through, just the ground on the bottom. Uh, it had uh, horns on four corners that I've tried to uh, show you there. This was to bind the sacrifice to the altar. You'd uh, bind it by cords to these horns. It had uh, a great work that would be in there. And uh, there... It's a little bit confusing about the rings. Some people uh, say that the uh, even say that the great work was around here, and that the rings were here, so it could be carried. But many believe that the great work did sit down inside, but the rings went through holes in the corners, and so the rings where you could put the uh, put the poles through, and so this could be carried. So it's made out of brass. Uh, that uh, overlays uh, the wood, the acacia wood that is there. So it's just within uh, the gate, as we said, it's the very first thing that you see. Anybody remember from the study on the altars of God, what does altar mean? What does the word altar mean? Anybody reach back that far? Okay, all right, that's that's true in terms of its meaning, but what's the literal meaning of the word altar? Place of slaughter. Remember that? Place of slaughter. That's the meaning that is there. So we're talking about the place of slaughter. The altar is a place of slaughter. And uh, there's another uh, name for this altar called the altar of burnt offering. And there is, uh, in that sense of the word, a, a, a sense of ascending. Okay? And so you have the two things that are going on there, the slaughter and also the ascending. That is what takes place in terms of the individual, in terms of the animal, and then its corresponding uh, relationship to God. So the procedure was that the lamb or the bullock, the goat, the heifer of the dove was brought, the hands were laid on it, the uh, man uh, confessed his sin, said, yes, I'm a sinner, this is my sin. The hands are laid upon the uh, sacrifice that uh, is then, uh, the throat is cut, uh, the 
blood pours out into the basins and that basin is, would sometimes be taken into the holy place but more often than not just dumped out uh, on the ground uh, there poured out at the foot of the altar the animal was therefore uh, was thereafter either burned entirely there were whole burnt offerings uh, where the entire animal was burnt or sometimes uh, just partial offerings where a particular part of the animal was burnt uh, the other was saved for the priest and the ashes would fall down through the great work and then be uh, dug up and placed in a, uh, uh, in outside of the camp and was later used to cleanse the unclean. And so we have a, uh, this is a huge thing. We're talking about eight foot long, uh, not, no more, yeah, eight foot long, eight foot wide, and uh, over five feet high. This is a major uh, piece of furniture. It's been thought that every other piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle could be placed inside the brazen altar. Everything could be placed inside of this brazen altar. So we need to see that the altar woo, is a place of judgment. The altar is the place of judgment. Someone over here, could you find Numbers 21.9? Numbers 21.9. Randy, Judges 16.21. Uh, Randy Wolwin, Second uh, Kings 25.7. Someone in here. Uh, Al Herman, Second uh, Kings 25.7. Uh, Ken Herman, Second uh, Samuel 3.34. Uh, Lamentations 3.7. Uh, Ron Stewart, uh, Psalm 107.16. Uh, Dave Burke, Deuteronomy, well, no, we're not going to have any more time. Just write these ones down. Deuteronomy 28, 23, and then Isaiah 60, 17. So we're talking about uh, the place of judgment. Brass is a picture of judgment. We saw those in the, in the pillars that held up the linen fence that they uh, were in sockets uh, of brass and that was symbolic of judgment and so this is an entirely brass structure gleaming with brass covered acacia wood and brass is a symbol of judgment. Uh, let's look at these verses, Numbers 21.9. Okay, this is a picture of, of judgment. This is... Uh, forelooking even to the cross. Do you remember uh, even as uh, uh, Moses lifted up the uh, serpent of the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up? And so this is a picture of judgment. Judges 16.21. Okay, so we have, here's a man that is under judgment bound in brass. Second Kings 25.7. Okay, again, the same thing. Second Samuel 3.34. Amen. Lamentations 3.7. Okay, then in that word chain is the understanding of brass. Psalms 107.16. Okay, and it's talking about deliverance from judgment. And so uh, these other scriptures you can also write down Exodus 40:30. Brass uh, 
referring to judgment and we'll continue this thought next week. Amen. The Lord bless you.